singing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Good morning, church. Thank you so much for joining us today remotely. We know there's a lot of fear in our country right now. And as a church family, we want you to know that this decision was not one that is made in fear. We believe this is the best choice to gather 
in our homes in this different way in the use of technology because it's the safest thing for our community. We want to be good neighbors. We also want to protect the elderly and those who are vulnerable and more at risk for this disease. And so we are so glad that you have chosen to join us today. And we hope that you are blessed through this time of worship together. I'm so thankful for Bud Lovell for joining us today, helping us to worship, uh, longtime minister of music and pastor here for many years. Thankful for Sherry and for Sandra also being present and for our tech crew, all those that are making it possible for us to worship here today. Today we want to remember people in our family of faith who are struggling, some through illness, but uh, perhaps not related to the coronavirus. We want to always be in prayer as a family of faith together. Today I want to encourage you to pray for the family of Doug Watterson, a longtime Cliff Temple pastor who passed away yesterday. And next week we will do something a little more to remember his life and the service that he had here at Cliff Temple. Forrest Rush, our dear brother, also passed away last night. We're going to miss Forrest and his uh, sweet demeanor, and we will let you know more about funeral services to come. Joni McElveen experienced the death of her mother on March the 10th, so we are praying for Joni uh, and for Elwood today. Uh, and also Mark Anderson, uh, his mother passed away. His mother was also very much like a mother to Mark's wife, Amy, and so we are praying for the Andersons today. Those that have been in the hospital recently are Francis Phillips, Grace Pulis, Maria Walker, Mary Montgomery. Uh, we are praying today for Steve Sharp in his ongoing fight against cancer. We pray for the encouragement of his soul today. We're also praying for Diane Watson, uh, Rhody Maston's grandmother, uh, who is uh, beginning treatment also for cancer. Rhody, we're praying for you as well as for your grandmother today. For Mike Cheshire, Pat's Cheshire's brother, and we're praying today for our sister Marie Dunn. There's a lot going on in the life of our fellowship, in addition to all the things that are making us afraid through this virus. And so it's so important that we come together and pray as a family of faith. That's why we're gathering together. So let's bow. Our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for your great love and care for our world. We thank you, God, that you are with us even in the midst of disease. And Lord, even when we don't understand what we're going through, we trust you. We call upon your name. We call upon you, Lord, for healing and for help. We call upon you today, O oh God, for the easing of our fears. And that for those, Lord, who are especially vulnerable, that you would watch over them and protect them by your loving hand. We pray today, Lord, for those who mourn. We pray for those who are enduring treatment. We pray today, Lord, for those who are wondering about finances as this virus may affect their jobs. God, we pray that as a country you would bring us together during this time and that the church would rise up as a voice of calm and a voice of faith. We pray, Lord, that you would give us faith today that our prayers indeed make a difference. Oh God, we look to you today for encouragement. And Lord, we pray that through this time of worship together that you would speak to our hearts and that even as we worship remotely, we would know that surely we are in your presence. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ, for his amazing sacrifice for us, and the resurrection life that he shares with us freely. 
And all this we pray in his good name. Amen. Today I'm preaching out of Luke 22. If you would open your Bibles to that as I'll be reflecting on the life of Christ there in the garden. And today I want to preach to you a message about the one prayer that can change everything. There is a prayer that we can pray in times of trouble, in times of extreme pressure that can make all the difference. We've all felt a lot of pressure this week. Many leaders have felt pressure in our city as they are making decisions about how to guide our community. Within our church staff, we've been making decisions such as whether to close our child development center and have chosen to do so out of caution and not wanting to spread the disease. We know that many church members are facing pressure as they're thinking about how to get to doctor's visits or whether they will be more at risk if they go out. Church members own businesses such as restaurants and they're wondering how are they going to pay their employees if people's patterns change? How will they assure customers? Our nurses and our doctors connected to the church and in our community have faced much pressure. They've been carrying an increased workload but also answering questions from everyday people like you and me. This has been a pressure-filled week. But the truth is, we always face pressure of one kind or another. Everyone feels pressure. Students feel pressure to get good grades in school. Children and youth experience peer pressure and what it might cause them to act a certain way. Adults feel pressure when they don't have enough money to pay the bills. Or maybe they're thinking as parents, how will we care for our children if the schools close? Everyone faces pressure. No matter how good you are at planning or what your personality is, or no matter how much experience you may have, the pressure never goes away. You may have this myth in your mind that someday we will live without pressure, but that is never going to happen. We have to learn to live with the pressure. And the truth is, pressure can be a good thing. Even in this crisis, there can be good things that happen. Tires don't work well unless they have the right pressure. I can remember as a kid growing up and going to my grandmother's, and she had one of those pressure cookers that had a little knob on top. And she used to put green beans and onions and bacon in there. And that pressure over a couple of hours would cook the green beans. I always thought that thing was going to explode at any minute. But what came out of that pot was delicious. Pressure can do good things. I can tell you that this week, in the wake of the threat over the coronavirus, I have prayed more. Pressure can do that. It can make us to pray more. It can cause us to come together. Pressure can push us toward God, or it can push us away from God. And this is why God says that under pressurized situations, God can receive the glory and help us to grow in faith. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure... Your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. When you're under pressure, how you respond reveals how much faith you have. If you find yourself lashing out, checking out, shouting out, or falling out, when you're under pressure, then you won't be of much use to God. 
But for those who learn how to handle life's pressures, God can do amazing, amazing things. So how can we learn to live with life's pressures such that we can walk with peace? Church, I've got good news today. If you're feeling stressed out, overwhelmed, or feeling like you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders, we know that God can give you and me the grace that we need and the peace that we need to deal with the pressures of life. Jesus has given us a model. Now, many weeks ago, I chose this passage to preach on of Jesus in the garden, but I believe it is coming on just the right Sunday as Jesus can show us how do we deal with life's pressure. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that Jesus, being in anguish, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The word there for anguish can also be translated agony. Jesus was in deep, deep agony over what he was facing. And what was he facing? I believe that in that moment, Jesus was already beginning to take on the weight of the world's sin. He said, I have a cup to drink. And that cup that God had given him to drink was anguish and agony over the sins of the whole world. He would be betrayed by his friends. Very soon his enemies would mock him. They would crush a crown of thorns on his head. They would give him a false trial and then put nails in his hands and lift him up on a cross in agony. Jesus knew that the cup that he was about to drink would be a cup of anguish. There's never been any greater pressure than that. It was every bit of on his shoulders. The truth is that every one of us, even if we think we carry the world on our shoulders, have never had to face pressure like that. There's only one person who has carried the weight of the world on his shoulders, and that's Jesus Christ. He was carrying the weight of the world's sin, the weight of the world's pain, all of our mistakes, all of our shortcomings. He was bearing it all, and in the garden, he was in anguish. 1 John 2.2 says, He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. He carried your sins. He carried my sins. But also the sins of everyone who has ever walked the planet. He bore it all. Nobody felt more pressure and stress like Jesus. We know that he had been carrying this for a long time, even before the cross. He was bearing the weight of what it was like to be the savior of the world. People were always coming to him with demands. They were bringing to him every disease and every sickness. The Bible says that he didn't turn anyone away but healed them all. He knew what it was to face pressure as the leader of a great movement. He knew what it was to be under pressure when his opponents gathered around him and sought to kill him. But even in spite of that pressure... We never see Jesus in a hurry. We never see Jesus bothered. He had this incredible calm in his life. He absorbed all the stress of everyone else. But when he was under pressure, he seemed to have this profound peace. Except for in the garden. When he is in the garden, he is in anguish. Sweating as if by drops of blood. Last fall, we took a group of 12 to Israel, and we made the journey from the old city through the Kidron Valley 
and then up to the Garden of Gethsemane. It was there that Jesus prayed this prayer. We don't know exactly where, but for many centuries, there is a rock where pilgrims would go believing that that was the rock where Jesus prayed in anguish. He was in a garden. You may not know it, but Gethsemane means a olive press. And so they found a first century olive press that was there in the midst of all of the olive trees. That is where Jesus was praying. An olive press does this. First, there's a large stone that will crush the olives. And then the olive bits are placed into three baskets. And over three times, those olives are pressed to make sure that every bit of the oil is drawn out. Three times, olives are submitted to that process, ultimately leading to olive oil. And so we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the place of the olive press. And it is here that he is praying this prayer of anguish. God, let this cup pass from me. He didn't just pray it once. He prayed it three times. First, he goes to the place of prayer and he says, God, I don't want this to happen. Let this cup pass from me if there's any other way, but not my will, God, but your will be done. He had already left the disciples to watch and pray for him a distance away. He goes to them and finds them asleep and he wakes them up saying, why can't you stay awake? Watch and pray. Jesus goes back a second time to pray at the rock saying again, not my will, but your will be done. He goes back to the disciples. Once again, they are asleep, not watching, not praying. He says, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. He goes back a third time and prays again a third time. God, not my will, but your will be done. And then he goes back to the disciples and once again, they are asleep. He wonders, could you not stay awake with me for this hour? Now in Luke, we see only a snapshot of what happens in the garden, but that is what is told in the other gospels. Jesus prays three times as if his own life was being pressed out in an olive press, his own life beginning to be drained out for the blessing that would come to the whole world. This is what's happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I imagine that when Jesus got up from that prayer, he was different. In fact, after praying that prayer of anguish, we see this incredible calm come over Jesus as he accepted what he was going to do. When he's arrested, he does not fight back. When he is mocked, he does not return mocking. When he is being falsely accused, he doesn't say a word. Even when he was being led to the cross, he did not cry out. On the cross instead, he forgives his enemies. Only at the very last does he cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he breathes his last in a cry of anguish. But all throughout his ordeal, even to the very end, we see a Christ who was filled with peace even while he was in the midst of deep agony. Now the disciples, they ran. They had no peace. Peter would deny Jesus three times. Peter would take up the sword and cut off the servants of the high priest's ear. Jesus would say, put away the sword. I'm not leading a rebellion. They would all run away. They would all fall away. And so Jesus is calm through the ordeal and the disciples are a mess. I wonder, 
if they had watched and prayed, if they had been vigilant, would they have fallen into temptation the way that they did? I've been thinking this past week, who am I more like? Am I more like Jesus, moving through life's challenges with peace? Or am I more like the disciples who run in different directions, fearful and afraid of what is happening and not trusting in God? Church, I don't know about you, but I want to learn to live with peace like Jesus. I want to learn how Jesus moved through the pressures of life with such a profound peace. Today I want to suggest to you the one reason why I believe that he was able to remain calm. Jesus' response to pressure was prayer. When he faced big decisions like calling the first disciples, he went up to the mountainside and prayed all night. When he was in the garden under this greatest pressure, he went to pray. When he was busy with the crowds, healing every sickness and disease, he made sure every morning to get up and pray for God's strength. When he raised Lazarus from the grave, he prayed. When he was opposed by the Pharisees and religious leaders, he prayed. He taught his disciples that they should always pray and never give up. So when should Jesus' disciples pray? Always. When should they give up? Never. This was his secret. He prayed when he was under pressure. But there is one particular type of prayer that he prayed that I believe makes all the difference. This is the prayer that can transform your life. This is the prayer that can change my life and I want to share it with you today. Jesus prayed, oh God, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to go through this trial, but not my will, your will be done. That is the prayer. That is the prayer that can change everything. Jesus prayed in deep surrender to the work of God in his life, but that was not an easy prayer to pray, saying, God, your will be done. Surrender is not a popular word. People dislike it almost as much as they dislike the word submission. Surrender sounds like admitting defeat in a battle or forfeiting a game or giving in to a stronger opponent. And in our culture that is so much about competition, never give up, never giving in, that is the mantra that we give. And surrendering is unthinkable. We think that surrendering is resigning or being lazy, but that is not what surrender to God is about. It is not passive resignation. It is not fatalism. It is not being lazy. It's not accepting the status quo. In fact, when people surrender to God, often God calls them into a type of battle and to challenge the status quo. Surrender actually opens the door to the best life possible. Because when you give to God the control over your circumstances, you open yourself up to the best that God can give. All of God's possibilities are opened when you surrender to God. That's what Jesus was doing in the garden. He surrendered himself to God's plan. He didn't say, God, if you're able to take this pain away from me, please do so. He had already said, God, nothing is impossible for you. I know that you can do it. But he is saying, if there's any other way, Lord, if there's any place I haven't considered or another way that I've not realized, would you please do that? 
But if, if it fulfills your purpose, then that's what I want as well. And when he prayed that, Jesus was affirming that God knew best what Jesus had to do and that what he was going to suffer was the best for the whole world. That's true of you and me as well. We become our best selves and we are released to impact the world when we surrender to God. C.S. Lewis said these words, the more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become because God made us. He invented all the different people that you and I were intended to be. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. So let me tell you today two ways that surrender will impact your life in the right direction. First, surrender gives you the most blessing. We think if I give in, if I give up, look all that I'm going to have to give. Look at what I'm going to have to surrender. But when you surrender to God, God actually fills you with the best things. The exact opposite happens. The Bible is crystal clear that you benefit when you surrender your life to God. For one thing, when you surrender, you'll be blessed with peace. Job twenty two twenty one says, Stop quarreling with God. If you agree with him, you will have peace at last and things will go well for you. God will give you peace and God will give you power. You'll have power to overcome temptation. You'll be blessed with power to move through your biggest problems. Finally, you'll be blessed with real freedom. This is the greatest paradox. When I let go, God can do God's best work. I am most free when I am most surrendered to God. And the sooner we learn that truth, the better off we will be. This is why Jesus taught anyone who wants to save their life must lose it. But anyone who loses their life for my sake will find it. Now here's the second way surrender will impact your life in a positive way. Surrender enables you to fulfill your purpose. Surrender people are the ones that God uses. God chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus, not because she was talented or wealthy or beautiful. He chose her because she was surrendered to God. She said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me as you have said. There is nothing more powerful in the hands of God than a surrendered life. C.S. Lewis also said this, there are two types of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, okay, your will be done. You take it from here. If you think that you can do better than what I'm offering to you, then your will be done. Have it your way. Thy will be done is the most transforming prayer you can pray. This is the prayer that opens up all the other doors. This is the prayer that changes everything. God, your will be done in my work. I may not understand what's happening. I may not understand what I have to endure, but God, your will be done. Use me to work for your kingdom in my work. God, your will be done in my family. I want to be a great spiritual leader for my family first. God, your will be done as you transform our conflict and our confusion 
into purpose and peace. God, you will be done in my relationships, in the people that I may date or the people who live next door to me. God, your will be done in my marriage. Let my marriage bring you glory. God, not my will, but your will be done with every breath that I have left. When Jesus was under intense pressure, that was what he prayed. Father, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus used the idea of a cup. He said, Father, if this cup could pass from me, then let it pass. This wasn't the first time that he talked about the cup. In Mark 10, he said that he had a cup that he had to drink from the Father. When he told Peter to put away the sword, Jesus said, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? And so in that way, the cup was his choice to drink. And in this cup, it was something that none of us could drink for ourselves. This is the cup that he had to drink for the sins of the world. This is sort of a metaphor for all of the sins of the world, all of the wrath of God being contained. And if you think about that cup, all the liquid is suspended there under pressure from the sides of the cup. That is what Jesus was asked to drink. Think of this cup as all the mistakes and all the anger and all the brokenness and the greed and the racism of our world. Jesus being willing to drink it all. That's what he did for us. The truth is, church, Every one of us has a cup to drink. Every one of us has a purpose. And it may be that part of drinking that cup will be suffering. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to endure the trial. And yet, often, that is what the cup is about. The beautiful thing is that it's not only a cup of anguish or suffering, but also a cup of blessing. It is the cup that ultimately would be the symbol of our shared life together. When he said, this is my blood poured out for you, he then extends the cup to us, which we take. Know this today, brothers and sisters, every one of us has a cup to drink. Every one of us has something that we must endure so that God's kingdom will spread. And so God looks at you today and God looks at me to say, will you drink this cup? Will you allow the cup of anguish to come to your lips, knowing that it is also the cup of blessing and of joy? Yesterday, a friend pointed out a YouTube video to me that I found to be very beautiful. We know that in Italy, the coronavirus is very severe, such that pretty much everybody is quarantined to their homes. The shops are empty, the restaurants, seem like ghost towns. But as people are there in their homes, last night, this was captured on YouTube, they had opened their windows in their apartments and people began to sing into the streets. Beautiful songs. These melodies that were now being lifted all over the city and as one sang, another began to sing along too. Harmonies arose. It was a beautiful picture of how in the midst of that suffering, something beautiful can emerge. I believe that's true of what we're going through right now. I was thinking about this virus and how it's different from a crisis like 9-11. When 9-11 happened, 
there was a very clear enemy that was opposing us. And there were some directions that we needed to take as a country. But with this virus, there are no good guys and no bad guys. We are all in this together, every one of us impacted by this. And I believe that God is looking to see, will you come together? Will you endure this together? And maybe through all of this struggle, God can create something beautiful. I was thinking this past week too about Elizabeth Elliot. She and her husband Jim were missionaries in Ecuador in the 1950s. They heard a very clear call to God, from God, to go and to minister to a little village that was there, knowing that it was very dangerous. So they prepared the message that they would take and they got ready to go on the field. They landed and they shared that message that they came as friends, saying, I want to be your friend. Through miscommunication and through suspicion that arose, tragically, Jim Elliott was killed by a spear as well as at least two other missionaries. And Elizabeth Elliott, who was just married, was now a widow. She went back home for a season, but in the meantime, she had a child by Jim before he had been killed. And she made the decision to not stay in the safe place, but to go with her little girl back to Ecuador, to the very same tribe, to share with them the message of love and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. What happened to her was tragic. And yet in that suffering, God brought about something beautiful. Many of the tribesmen came to Christ. And also this was the impact. The culture had revenge killing really at the heart of all that they did. So if one person was killed, there would immediately be revenge on that person. And then that person would be avenged by their family. And on and on it went. But through Elizabeth Elliot's witness, they ceased revenge killing. The culture was literally transformed because Elizabeth was willing to drink the cup that had great risk and great suffering. This is what she said. There is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. To be a follower of the crucified means sooner or later a personal encounter with the cross. And the cross always entails loss. The great symbol of Christianity means sacrifice and no one who calls himself a Christian can evade that stark fact. Brothers and sisters, I know that God is with us in the midst of this very fearful time. But in the middle of all the pressure that we feel and all the decisions that must be made, may we double down on prayer. May we pray the prayer that can change everything. Thy will be done. Would you bow with me at this time? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us in our homes, in this place, in hospital rooms, in nursing homes. Oh God, you are in all of these places. And we know, God, that as we call upon your name, you can give us wisdom. You can help us, O oh Lord, to, to know how to stay safe from this disease. God, you can help us together to stem the tide that is rising of infection. 
God, you can use this crisis to bring about something good. And I pray today that whatever this means in each person's life, whatever the cup of suffering is that people have been asked to drink, we pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to follow the model of Jesus. Help us, oh God, when we are under pressure to turn to you, to believe in you, and to trust that your way for us is good and that you will never leave us and never forsake us. Oh Lord, we trust you today and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Bud is going to come and sing a final song with us of Have Thine Own Way. And I encourage you in the privacy of your home to really get quiet and to listen to the voice of God. And as you sing this song, may it be a genuine prayer before our Heavenly Father. We continue to worship. Thanks for joining us.